This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Coming up, a special humanitarian flight to help Ukrainian refugees arriving in Poland marking the pandemic anniversary and the pro-business mind. But we begin with another big step. To mask or not to mask, that is the question. The province announcing days ago that the masking mandate will be lifted on March the 21st, even though there are concerns about a new COVID-19 variant. So how do you feel about being mask-free in a congregate setting? Okay, we understand physically why mask wearing was necessary through most of the pandemic, but Emotionally, how important has the mask become to our mental well-being and sense of security? Will we struggle to find firm footing in the new normal without a face covering? Dr. Roger McIntyre is a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at U of T. He's also an academic, a scientist, and a physician. Dr. McIntyre, thank you very much for joining us on the feed. Great to hear from you again. And great to be with you again. So, with your varied background, and your experience, what are your initial thoughts on the government's announcement this past Wednesday about the dropping of the masking mandate? Robustly and unequivocal positive reaction to it on so many levels. First, of course, it speaks to progress made in public health and the uh, statistics going in the right direction, hence this uh, recommendation. But also as a psychiatrist and a person particularly interested in public health from a psychiatric and mental health perspective, This is also, I think, very important. So in the introduction, I posed the question, so I'm now going to pose them to you. How will this affect our our comfort level? There are many people who have really grown accustomed to the mask and also feel it's a sense of security. How do you think people are going to react to the the knowledge that they can stop wearing masks? You know, Anne, I think you really touched on something so important, that being not only a public health uh, deliverable with wearing a mask, but also a security. Way back, about a year and a half ago, my colleagues and I did a study in Poland and other countries in Europe, and what we found was that when people wear masks in response to recommendations from public officials, they are more likely to report greater security less likely to feel anxious, depressed, and have insomnia. This sounds like a very, very good thing. Now we have, in fact, the mask being recommended to use as you wish. It's not being mandated. So does that mean that it's a fait accompli, it's a done deal, that our sense of security, worry, anxiety, insomnia is all going to get worse? I don't think so. I don't think so. Absolutely, there's going to be a period of unfamiliarity, For example, I know firsthand that when I'm driving down the street without my seatbelt on, I sometimes forget, I I feel something's not quite right. And of course, I put it back in and I feel secure again. And that will be the case for many people with the mask. But I do think, in fact, that what will happen is, is that people will go back to how things were pre-pandemic in the sense that there's other ways, in fact, people will alleviate their sense of a need for security in the sense that they're going to see others, others who are like-minded to them, others who share their and interpret the available information the way they do, who have comfort in not wearing a mask. I also think at the end of the day, uh, and when you look back in evolution, we didn't evolve wearing masks. We evolved not wearing masks. In millions of years of evolution have crafted our DNA to look each other in the face without a mask. 
And I can tell you this, it's been a long two years, but those two years don't match the millions and millions of years of evolution where we want to see each other's face. And that will absolutely drive the, the behavior over time. Let's hope statistics keep going the right direction. Let's hope that we continue to see this thing being controlled. If that's the case, I think it's going to be very positive overall having that interpersonal connectedness again. So we were told right from the get-go when the mandate was put into place, uh, you know, less than a couple of, less than two years ago, we were told that mask wearing was a way to prevent the spread of COVID-19. We're talking about droplets. We're talking about airborne. So why now? I mean, it's still out there. Omicron is still floating around. There is the possibility of a new variant rearing its ugly head. What about the, that feeling of of not being protected physically? Well, it's different parts of that question. I think, in fact, with respect to the deliberations and the uh, discussions that's taking place uh, amongst uh, the public health officials, I'll have to defer to them because obviously I'm not part of those conversations. But what I can speak is more generally, and that is, is that at some point we need to make a decision. And it's about the balance of risks. It's always about balancing the risks. I think, in fact, to go with the notion that we're going to eliminate the masks only when the last virus case is removed from the face of the earth Mm. would be ridiculous. Clearly, there has to be individual responsibility, and there has to be an appraisal of the overall risk. Look at our young people. Young people, for example, are suffering from a mental health perspective for a host of reasons. And we're hearing plenty of information now showing that their emotional, their social development is being compromised in in part by wearing masks. So there are risks from a psychiatric, a psychological developmental perspective with wearing masks. Now, the the, the call to wearing a mask was important, and we should have been wearing masks during during the time of heightened risk, but this is about balancing the risks. And again, let's go back to how the World Health Organization defines health. They define health in three ways, physical health, mental health, and social well-being. And we need to find that calculus just to thread the needle perfectly when, okay, it's now time to balance the physical health. We don't want to compromise our mental health or our social well-being. And you have to, in fact, balance all three of those together. So I think the decision seems very appropriate at this time. Of course, we watch and wait. We hope numbers go in the right direction. But it's not only about people's mental health, it's about their, uh, their, their physical health, it's also their mental health. And that's the balancing act. I'm not a politician for a reason. I don't mm-hmm. want to uh, have to make the decision politicians make. Uh, but I certainly think based on what I'm hearing from our experts and our uh, public health officials, the time seems right. I've been very concerned about the mental health fallout of this pandemic. I think that now the time is right to move this forward. So... It was mandated that we wear masks. We didn't have a choice. Now we have a choice. In fact, Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief uh, Medical Officer of Health for Ontario, in his press conference on Wednesday said, and I'm not quoting him, but in general, he said, I'm still going to wear masks when I go to busy settings like a a big box store. And that's going to be his choice. Uh, He says that people need to be tolerant of those who still prefer to mask. And I thought that was an interesting line. I think, I think it's an important line. There needs to be a respect of people's autonomy. You know, over the years, and I've had the, the privilege of spending plenty of time in Asia where I conduct a lot of research. And your listeners who spend time in Asia and say over the last 10, 20 years would know that in many Asian countries, 
in part because of air pollution, but also in part because of concern of infectious spread of disease. It's quite common to see people in many countries in Asia wear masks. This is long before COVID, and not during the height of any other type of epidemic. And I don't think that's dissimilar from what we're looking at now. In the sense, we live in a world where these things are possible. I think it's about respecting people's autonomy around their health care decisions. Everyone makes that decision for themselves. Uh, and I certainly hope that that's uh, respected. And I, I think those remarks, Dr. Moore, are well taken. And I think it's uh, each person will need to make that decision. Uh, but going forward, I think there's another part to this. And that is, is that I think that many, many Canadians, many Canadians are, have, are, have an appetite like they've never had before for really making decisions for themselves around mm. their own decisions, around health care and so on. And this is, in fact, now being given back to them fully. So I agree, Dr. Moore. I think that these are decisions people should make. And I'm like yourself, Ann, and maybe like Dr. Moore, the way you quoted him, certainly if I'm in a very, very highly congested area, uh, you know, packed into, say, a subway train or something of that nature, I'm going to be wearing a mask for the near term, that's for sure. But that's my decision. And if someone's not wearing a mask, I will think no differently than them. That's their decision. And that's therein lies the, the 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 issue, and it's tolerance. And you know, we saw the reaction of people in the early stages of the mask mandating. If you didn't have a mask on or you weren't wearing it properly, people were angry at you. Uh, now, if it's my decision, it's your decision to wear a mask in a public setting or wear a mask whenever I want because it might make me feel safer. I hope that there's tolerance out there from from the public. I do, too, and I think just to sort of speak to the elephant that's in the room mm. here, and I think that it's abundantly clear that mask wearing was not only a public health recommendation and an important one and one that we should have been adherent to, but it became very politicized. It became very tribalistic, and it became really kind of a badge of honor or a badge of dishonor, depending on where you looked at this thing. And it was terrible what had happened, the politicalization, not just of the mask, but many other aspects of public health and recommendations. So I really, really hope, like you do, Anne, that this is seen uh, as it should be seen, uh, unidimensionally, if you will, as a public health measure. And if someone makes that decision to wear it, that should be respected. And I'm really hoping that uh, we can move along. And it may be a bit Pollyanna on my behalf, but I do mm -hmm. hope that some of the politicalization of the mask uh, certainly cools down. It certainly has been a very hot topic, as we all know, the last two years. But uh, like I said, uh, on, a, on a train, a uh, busy, busy train, also be wearing a mask mm -hmm. in the near term. But, uh, you know, these are decisions I'll make and I'll respect other people's decisions as they make. And again, these types of decisions are very, very personal and uh, they need to be respected. Dr. McIntyre, we are edging ever closer to normal or a new normal with the yes. lifting of restrictions, no. so many of them, and now the, the dropping of the masking mandate. What's your best advice for those of us who are, for, for many of us, these are uncharted waters? Yeah. So I think that my advice is, is that uh, we should not be uh, throwing babies out with bath waters. I guess that's the overused phrase. What I mean by that is let's not forget that this pandemic still exists and we need to exercise appropriate and measured caution. Uh, and uh, I think there's an understandable reaction people are going to have. They want their darn lives back. People are very angry and frustrated, set up, and it makes a lot of sense that people are just going to say, the heck with it, back to normal, here we go. And I think that that is understandable. But I think we just need to be a bit more measured and let's just get this cautionary, take a cautious approach. Secondly, I do think, in fact, that... Uh, you know, there has been a number of recommendations that came out of this last two years around hygiene and 
public hygiene, and heck, those would uh, be applicable at any time, and certainly that's something that should continue as well. I think also, and one other point I'll finish on, we look back at SARS that affected Toronto, as you know, the city most affected outside of Asia more than any city in the world. And what we did learn from the SARS experience, and is that many people began to experience very negative emotions and very negative psychological states. Like some people even have post-traumatic stress and depression. It didn't manifest itself long after SARS was gone or largely controlled. What I'm saying is, is that some people, almost if, if you will, during the heightened battle, if you will, of two years, they're fighting this time, they're trying to get on with their lives. Now the thing's coming to an end. And for a lot of people, that's when some of the difficulties begin. And so if people begin to notice that they're not themselves, they start feeling downcast, they start feeling depressed or dark or start having you know, insomnia, difficulties in that area, they should reach out to the healthcare provider and be aware of the fact that it's not uncommon for very negative psychological and emotional health outcomes to not appear until the problem is resolved. And I wouldn't hesitate to reach out to the healthcare providers if that's the case for them. Dr. Roger McIntyre, an academic, a scientist, a physician, professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at U of T. Thank you for your insights, your advice, your expertise, and your opinions. Great to be with you, Anne. Thanks for covering the topic. And I think that uh, as a citizen, I think we're all very pleased to see the progress that's being made. And my fingers are crossed. I know yours are, too. We'll keep going in this direction. So thanks for having me. And, and thank you. It was two years ago Friday, the 11th of March, that the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. And now, after a tumultuous journey, as we battled COVID-19 with might and with courage, we are seeing life returning to normal with the lifting of many, if not all, restrictions, most recently the announcement of a mask-free Ontario. With a look back at how the pandemic affected us here in York Region and a look ahead to, hopefully, a healthier future, we're joined now by Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. Great to have you with us, Dr. Pecos. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So York Region, mighty and strong and tough and, and, and brave through this pandemic. Let me ask you what your role was through most of the pandemic before you stepped into that of Medical Officer of Health of York Region. What were you doing through the highs and lows of the pandemic the past couple of years? Sure. So at the outset of the pandemic, I was working as an Associate Medical Officer of Health in Peel Region. Uh, and and very quickly, once uh, we got word of, of a pandemic brewing in China, and, and then, you know, when it eventually came to North America and to Canada and to Ontario, um, I was working with uh, Peel Region and the initial response, and then was very involved in the workplaces primarily, but, you know, across many of the areas of uh, the response in Peel Region, uh, and then uh, started working with York Region supporting the response as a public health physician. Uh, and then eventually moved into the uh, medical office of health role. And in your opinion, as I look back and think about the various lockdowns and the restrictions and uh, the mask wearing and and all of the things that, that came to, into play because of the pandemic, but most importantly, the vaccination, how important were all of those methods of trying to contain this pandemic in your view? So, you know, of course, before we had a vaccine, you know, and this, has been going on for, you know, a full two years, certainly, but, you know, a full year uh, with the opportunity of being vaccinated, we sometimes forget how incredibly fearful 
um, it, things work in, in the initial couple of months and, and in the initial couple of ways before we had vaccine. Um, and they were, you know, the, the lockdowns, the public health measures and, and the pandemic restrictions were incredibly important. You know, we saw those waves, um, you know, increase and increase and reach a peak with, you know, deaths, hospitalizations, and, and really without those measures, um, there would have been no end to those peaks. And we saw that around the world. Some places implemented them a little bit later than others, and they suffered for it. And I think in Ontario, for the most part, we did a, a reasonably good job of implementing um, restrictions when they were necessary and then, you know, relaxing those when they were no longer necessary. Um, but there's no question that the vaccine has, has been the biggest impact. And, and, you know, that's the reason right now that we're opening up. That's the reason that Omicron hasn't been incredibly devastating because of how transmissible it was. It has certainly led to, you know, deaths that were beyond any of the previous waves because it is so transmissible. Um, but for the most part, uh, we've done very well because of our very, very high vaccination rate. Dr. Pecos, with your vast experience in healthcare and medicine, were you surprised at how quickly we saw the rollout of the vaccine? So I wasn't uh, entirely surprised. I was very thankful, though, at how quickly the vaccine was prepared and was and was distributed. Uh, certainly, there have been many, many people in the basic sciences and the vaccine sciences, and I engage with them regularly at, at the University of Toronto, um, who've been involved in vaccine development and science for you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and including in the mRNA uh, vaccines, at least for the past uh, 10 years. So, you know, for those who say this is brand new technology, well, it, it was brand new in the sense that, um, you know, it hadn't been brought to market, but it was technology that had been, you know, developed over many years. Uh, and, and because of how pervasive and how important the pandemic was globally, how much funds were dedicated to it, and unfortunately, how many people were affected, we were able to test those vaccines to prove how effective they were and to deploy them, you know, relatively quickly. Certainly the, the largest vaccine deployment globally, but also I think it's very important to remember the most scrutinized. So there has been more evidence and research on the almost 11 billion vaccine doses given worldwide than on anything that we've ever done as a, as a human species. And so, you know, for those who might say that they're kind of experimental vaccines or, or you know, their safety and efficacy, are, are a bit unsure, you know, I, I can't say how much that is untrue. There's literally nothing we've researched more uh, in the history of humanity, and I'm, again, very thankful for that. And you bring up a good point. Through some of the, the darkest days of the pandemic and even days where we have felt great hope, there was a lot of misinformation out there that people were glomming on to, and it had a great deal to do with uh, naysayers, but also the power of social media. What are your thoughts about things that are put out on social media that are not science-driven and how people absorb and believe what they're reading. You know, again, that's not uh, surprising, really, but was just of such greater magnitude during the pandemic. I, I think, again, I'm thankful, and I think all of us need to be thankful that we're very fortunate in Ontario, in Canada, that even though that misinformation and, and intentional disinformation with the intention of harming people um, was present, and, and certainly we can all read about it and have been exposed to it, but it was really small, and I think that's wonderful. You know, 90% of the eligible people in Ontario uh, got vaccinated. I think that's a testament to how much we care for each other, how much confidence we have in our institutions, in science, and, and even in our governments, although that, that may waver sometimes. But I think um, it, it's a, a wonderful part of our, our you know, Canadian society that we were able to have only, you know, a very small proportion of people that we're disseminating that kind of information. We need to fight it because as it, you know, continues to circulate, um, people might believe some of it. And, and certainly with a lot of pandemic fatigue, 
people were, you know, having trouble still, you know, adhering to all of the, the guidance that was all critically important. And we're also seeing, you know, with third doses, they're incredibly, incredibly important uh, to get that third dose in order to prevent severe disease, even though it, it doesn't protect as much against infection, it protects against hospitalization and death. Getting those messages across has been more difficult. But again, I'm, I'm just very thankful, and I think we all need to be, about how well the vaccine rollout and, and how much Canadians did respond to the call to get those needles in arms. We're seeing the lifting of so many restrictions, almost all of them, and most recently the masking mandate. It's going to be dropped on March the 21st. As York Region's Medical Officer of Health, are you confident that this is the road we should be taking, or are you fearful that we are putting ourselves at greater risk? So, you know, I think reasonable people can differ on on the timing of of removing the mask. You know, I think um, right after spring break, is a, is a challenging time to do that after so many people, children and, and families are going to be going away, gathering with others and then returning. Uh, but I think most of the um, indicators, you know, whether it be wastewater or hospitalizations, are pointing in the right direction. Um, and so it's not unreasonable to get rid of those masks in some settings, you know, most settings really, uh, but to keep them in places like mass transit and, of course, to keep them, as we probably will need to for quite some time, in congregate settings and healthcare settings and a few other settings. Um, and I think also it, it's, it's important to remember that just because those mandates are being lifted doesn't mean you have to take off your mask. And I think a really important piece of what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks to months is that people just need to be kind and considerate to each other. Um, there are many people who are going to be very enthusiastic to take off their masks, but again, many, many people who are fearful uh, and uncomfortable and many people who have you know good basis to fear because almost 10% of our population has some kind of immunocompromising condition that puts them at greater risk. And to be honest, them keeping their masks on only helps them so much. And really, it's about everyone keeping their masks on throughout the pandemic that's helped. And so I would hope that, you know, most Canadians, most Ontarians, most people in York Region, if they see someone who's uncomfortable or someone expresses that they are high risk, or if they're in an environment well or they're, you know, whether it's in an elevator or in a very busy store um, or in a variety of other settings, that they would keep their mask in their pocket and just, you know, put it on when it seems that it's a reasonable thing to do. Dr. Barry Pecos, as we are emerging from the pandemic, as we take a look at the the two-year anniversary of the first call from the WHO declaring a pandemic, what does the future look like for York Region, for the residents of York Region? You know, I think the future will include COVID uh, for for the you know for the foreseeable future, at least you know in in the next couple of months to even you know six to eight months. I think one of the things we need we can look forward to is the spring and summer. You know, that is naturally a time when um, respiratory illnesses, illnesses that are spread through coughing and through the air, um, decrease because we're more outside. We're not quite <laughs> at the summer or spring yet in New York region, but we can certainly see, you know, uh, blue skies and, and warming temperatures. And so I, I think we can look forward to that. I, I do think that we do need to keep our masks in our pockets, not only now, but in the fall. Because whether it is COVID or many, many other respiratory illnesses that we haven't really seen um, in our community because we've all been under these restrictions, we saw in other countries, other jurisdictions last year, last fall, um, that there was a lot of what's called RSV or influenza, paranumavirus, lots of viruses that were circulating we hadn't seen. So even if COVID is, is not the big story there, you know, I think there are going to be reasons to keep that mask in our pocket. We, we may see or will likely see increased hospitalizations and, and effects of not gathering until now, or maybe even further effects of COVID if, if, God forbid, we do have other variants or other things that happen. So, you know, 
most of the most of the measures are going to be gone, and we can certainly enjoy that. Um, but I think we just need to recognize this does not mean the end of COVID. Um, and I think we just may reach a new normal with that mask in our pocket, using it when we need to, and just, you know, being just more respiratory aware in general going forward. I want to thank you so much for your words of wisdom, Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, and thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much for having me. After the break, help for Ukraine. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Tina Cortez is next with a humanitarian flight for Ukrainian refugees. Last Wednesday evening, an Air Canada cargo plane left Toronto's Pearson Airport for Warsaw. This flight was chartered and paid for by Airlink. Steve Smith is the CEO. Steve, welcome to the feed. Hi, Tina. Thanks so much for having me. So what specific groups have joined forces in this initiative? Yeah, so for uh, for this flight, so Airlink is all about um, pulling together uh, nonprofit organizations and uh, the aviation sector, air carriers, to move humanitarian relief and uh, and, and responders, and uh, and so we at this point have now moved over a hundred responders across twenty five different NGOs, uh, all big, big names and uh, some of the smaller names that you may or may not be familiar with, um, and uh, but for this charter specifically for Air Canada, we worked with uh, Project Cure. And uh, global medic, and so uh, and so the cargo going on that flight was actually uh, medical uh, uh, grade uh, beds and mattresses for hospitals uh, going into Poland, and then there was also some critical uh, medical supplies that will uh, that were also going to Poland. The whole flight was going to Poland, but they will go onwards to uh, to to Ukraine. And where did the supplies come from? Who made these donations? You know, the, the, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not specifically sure exactly where those donations came from. Um, those organizations, Project Cure and Global Medic, I mean, that is part of their model, where they take donations from um, organizations that make those things. Or, um, and so that's, um, but they're all, uh, um, you know, uh, certain um, grades and standards that, that are appropriate to be sent. That's really important right now. Um, and so, that, you know, those, those were all good things that um, that are also identified. Um, by the groups on the ground, the um, the authorities as key needed items. And how do you know the supplies will get to those who need it? Yeah, so so the the whole point of um, of what Airlink does, working with nonprofit organisations, um, is that we um, spend a lot of time vetting um, our partners and making sure that they're good, credible organisations. You know, we've been doing this for over a decade now. We're also responding to multiple uh, disasters around the world. Obviously, this is the biggest one, uh, Ukraine, right now. Um, but one of the key elements of, of our work is to only work with partners that um, have a um, an established track record, a good operational um, ability, and also a, a clear and defined distribution plan at destination. That's really important. We can't just send shipments that are to the people of Ukraine. Right, that will get to nobody. So it really needs to make sure it's to go into a credible partner that has a distribution plan on the ground. So we focus a lot on that, and we know that that's the, the case in this in this instance. 
Steve, will there be additional flights? Yes, there will. Actually, um, you know, within the, within the next couple of days, uh, and we'll be sending multiple. I mean, we're right now uh, working um, more than twenty different shipments uh, of various different sizes. Um, but let's just say, in total, uh, we're talking multiple aircraft, big seven four sevens. Um, could be. Um, we're also getting great support. You know, this flight that we just worked with on uh, Air Canada, what a tremendous partner and what a great organization they are. Uh, they should be really proud of sending this flight, first one out of Canada. Um, but, you know, we're working with uh, many uh, carriers around the world. That's our model. And we'll be sending uh, multiple flights going going forward. Now, I know you, you mentioned this a little bit, but I thought maybe you could expand on it. You know, this type of work, this humanitarian work, isn't new for Airlink, is it? No, it's not. No, that's right. We've been we've been doing this for uh, for over a decade. You know, uh, the organization was founded around the time of the uh, the Haiti earthquake, um, as many uh, nonprofit organizations were founded um, around that time. That was a big uh, catalyst event for uh, for a lot of the humanitarian sector. Um, but now we've been you know responding to most major disasters. Um, you know, every year since since that since that time. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had massive responses for, uh, for COVID and continue to respond. Uh, we sent aid to support programs for almost uh, uh, 10 million people last year. Um, and, uh, you know, even back as far as 20, what was it, 14, 50 for the, 14 and 15 for the Ebola crisis, um, we did a similar thing where we were consolidating shipments from all over, um, whether it was uh, all over the Americas, all over Europe, Consolidating them into hubs and then flying them down on aircraft um, to to get into uh, you know various parts of West Africa in that case, and so that's what we'll do now. Obviously, not West Africa, but into um, into uh, Ukraine and the surrounding nations. And do you know over the years, you know, how many relief workers you've flown in, or how much you know humanitarian cargo you have transported? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're 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 now up into uh, you know um, thousands and thousands of, of relief workers and uh, millions and uh, millions of uh, pounds of uh, cargo um, that we've now transported a significant amount. Um, I probably should have a better handle on exactly how much it is, but um, you know, we're really just focused on making sure that it, you know it could even be um, you know one pallet of, uh, of of supplies if it's the most critical and most important. Um, you know, and so so we do focus on the numbers for sure. You are to- totaling them up, but really, what we're focused on is the is the impact and making sure the right things get there and quickly. What do you want our listeners to know about Airlink and the work that you do? Well, I think it, I think what I would like to to you know everyone to know is that you know um, you know we we also see ourselves as somewhat of a champion for uh, the aviation sector. The aviation sector we talk about. Um, you know, in terms of the airplanes and, you know, and going on flights the whole days and all those sort of things. But the aviation sector is made up of people, right? And people genuinely care about helping others. And uh, and there's so much passion and uh, and excitement to, to help and do good things from within the um, aviation sector. And they have such incredible assets, airplanes, that uh, that are so important and so helpful in situations like this. And so I think that you know, we're really proud to be able to uh, sort of represent the aviation sector in that way. And um, and I think the other thing is, is that, you know, what we're also doing is making sure the right aid is, is being sent. You know, it's 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 some, it's very challenging in every disaster. We see it that, you know, very well-meaning uh, individuals. It's lovely. We need more good people in the universe. That's for sure. 
But if they're collecting the wrong things um, or they're, uh, and they have no idea how to get them there or if it's the wrong items, that can really cause problems um, and, and even sort of clog up the supply chain. You know, there's some statistics from, from uh, a number of studies that, um, that say, you know, 60% of, of, of aid that r- arrives in the early days of a disaster um, is not the right aid for that point in time. And so, you know, you can imagine that all the things that are arriving, um, if medical supplies need to get through, but yet everybody's sending, you know, clothing and all those different things, you know, that's a real challenge. And so we really need to make sure we're on the right side of that. And that's what Airlink does. And do your partners help with that as well, whether it's Project Cure, Global Medic, Air Canada? You've worked with them before. I'm sure that you have some sort of system in terms of how to get things done and mobilize quickly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we've we've got a, an ongoing relationship with each of our partners, and and uh, and we would you know we work with now with over 150 different NGOs. Um, you know, for a given response, as I mentioned earlier, we probably have about 25 uh, NGOs that we're actively working to help and support. Um, but you know, they they're, they're acutely aware of of these elements as well about sending the right aid. And so it's really, it could be, um, you know, as simple, although it's not generally simple, as working with the, um, you know, Ministry of Health for um, uh, for Ukraine, for Poland, to understand what the needs are and get it and get clear definition. These things are published um, as well. Um, but, you know, by having those partners, again, that, that distribution network on the ground, understanding what those needs are, that gets back sent back to, to HQ. And then that's when we can send uh, the key uh, elements that, or items that are needed. And that's what we do. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? Sure. So our website is uh, airlinkflight.org, airlinkflight.org. Steve, thank you for your time and your work, and please keep in touch. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. The feed will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. With the price of gas at record highs, many are considering the electric vehicle. Kevin Frankish gets behind the wheel. Every afternoon on my show, tomorrow's gas prices is appointment tuning, especially lately, with prices expected to keep climbing, reaching levels that we've never seen before. You may be considering electric vehicles, but what brand is right for you? Peter Hatches is a KPMG partner, a national sector lead for the automotive uh, sector. Uh, Hi, Peter. How are you? Good, Kevin. How are you? I am well. So, you, a KPMG recently uh, did a poll on EV cars, and, and what did you find out? Well, we found out some uh, surprising things. Uh, you know, we had a poll sort of uh, across Canada Canadians, and uh, nearly half of them would consider buying an EV manufactured by a major technology company, which we thought was uh, uh, very surprising. So brand loyalty is uh, maybe not as strong as people think it is. Isn't that interesting? I know that, you know, you go back in, into our parents' days, and, I mean, you were uh, you swore you were a Ford person or you were a Chevy person. Uh, and so that, that brand loyalty is now being replaced by, well, this is a lot better deal or this is a better vehicle. 
we found that one in five, one, sorry, three in five Canadians say they would prefer to buy an EV from a company specializing, though, in battery-powered automobiles. So they want to go with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, and uh, when we when we asked, uh, you know, people which companies they would give consideration to, Tesla was right on the top. It's the only and, one I know, uh, that Peter. Was very Peter, it's, it's the only one I know, personally. Yeah. Yeah, but the other ones are uh, not far off. And I think uh, Honda and Toyota were mentioned as the seconds. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have this uh, potential to buy from, you know, any kind of technology company, whether it's Apple or Google. And I think Canadians in our poll results showed that they still have range anxiety, charging anxiety. They're accustomed to filling up their car in five minutes. uh, And that's what it takes. And anything longer than that is a problem. Yeah, and 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 I'm just going to go back to to the the brand loyalty or the brand actually just the brand recognition. So, uh, you know, I, I honestly only if someone said, "Are you going to get an EV car?" I would automatically think Tesla. So you've got um, uh, not only in in, in uh, Tesla included, but you have Toyota uh, virtually tied uh, with Honda, uh, a distant third. So that's what I find that for me, it was a very informative poll. It's like, oh, wow, I can shop around. Yeah, and I think Canadians identify with with Honda and Toyota. They are big sellers in this country. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of big sellers and General Motors is another one. And as, as the race. As the race to produce electric vehicles heats up, I think you're going to see that the OEM that can make uh, a car that's, you know, can withstand the weather and the climate of Canada, can charge quickly, is going to win that race for market mm-hmm. share. And market share is really going to change. Um, nearly 9 in 10, 89% of Canadians call the auto sector important to Canada. And boy, are they right. Uh, I'm surprised that's not 100%, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And and they want action to grow our EV production on this side of the border. But unfortunately, when people want to buy, let's say, uh, an EV from a company specializing in battery-powered automobiles, none of those are manufactured in Canada yet. Not yet. Now, you know, where those batteries are going to be manufactured in the future remains to be seen. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of factors that come into play. You may have seen that uh, GM is building a, a very significant brand new plant, manufacturing plant called Plant Zero in uh, Michigan. And so this, this landscape is going to change. The, the big three, as we used to know them, now Solantis, uh, which used to be Chrysler, uh, and Ford and GM collectively are going to spend something in the range of $90 billion in the next, you know, three to four years. At least that's the plan. And that, that's a lot of money and that's a lot of capital expenditures. And, and, you know, those plants and, and facilities are going to, are going to expand throughout North America. Hopefully Ontario will have the right elements to attract that business. But as, as EVs become more popular, then that, of course, is going to be see a, a loss in the old combustion engine market. And a lot of our auto industry depends on that kind of engine. So unless we can manufacture our own EV cars and our own batteries here, we're going to see definitely a downturn. We're going to see some of that, Kevin. I think there's a little bit of silver lining. Don't forget we make a lot of components that go on the outside of the car. So whether it's powered by a, a combustion engine or a battery, you're still going to need doors, panels, seats, uh, windshields. At least that hasn't changed for now. 
So some of that, that portion of the industry, I think, is still safe. Having said that, if you're making internal combustion engine components, it's tough. Nearly half would buy an EV made by a technology company. So Google, you've mentioned yeah. Google, Apple, Amazon, Huawei, uh, Samsung. And that's got to be concerning in some of the boardrooms of uh, the, big, uh, the big automakers. It's got to be concerning. And, and they're looking again, as I said, at market share. Market share is extremely important. You want to maintain it or improve it. And there's inevitably, as I said, going to be some shifts. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the OEM that can make the car uh, suit North American tastes and expectations is going to win market share. People don't want to spend a lot of time charging a car. That's what our poll tells us. Yeah, and that's the second time you've said that in this conversation, is that people yeah. people want something. They're not just going to take what's there. They want something that may not be there yet in the market. May not be there yet. And there'll be an evolution, too. Mm-hmm. The battery technology, it'll get better. And so early adopters may be rewarded with something unique, but something that's going to change. And, of course, uh, you know, the climate is, is going to be the big winner. Yep. The greenhouse gas emissions uh, hopefully will be reduced, and that's the intention and, and the good intention of, of governments uh, globally. Now, hopefully the production of electricity sort of follows suit. We'll see. All right. Peter Hatches uh, from KPMG, <laughs> National Sector Lead for uh, the Automotive Sector. Thank you very much for this. It's been very uh, eye-opening. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Thank you. Jim Lang is next with Applying the Lessons Learned in Sports to the Business Boardroom. We see a lot of great athletes throughout the region of the GTA competing in OUA and CIS sports. You wonder, well, what do they do after they're done playing if they don't go pro? If you're Tenver Bengu from McMaster Marauders Football, you become a best-selling business author, and that's what he has done. Tenver, welcome to the feed. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Jim. Uh, great to be here. Well, okay, you're playing Mac, you're playing for Stefan Patastic, the Marauders, a really rich tradition of university football in the province. Were you thinking business or writing a book during your playing time, or are you just too focused on school and playing at the time? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think um, when you're playing, all you think about is, is the sport. Um, in my first few years, it was all about um, getting becoming as, as best of a player as I can get. Um, and then obviously, I think third and fourth year, you start realizing that, hey, you know, the dreams of getting going pro, I mean, if you make it pro, uh, is short-lived. You know, average lifespan of a CFL player is two years or even lower, I think, sometimes, depending on who you ask. Um, and so I think in my fourth year, I started thinking about business, but at no point in time did I, did I expect to go on the path that I've been on, and, uh, and the book was something I never even thought of writing. So, uh, yeah, it's mostly sports back then. You're, you're focused on, uh, on winning as many games as you can. And doing the best you can in the field. And then what was your major at Mac Tanvir? I was I did my undergrad in commerce. Okay. So I was uh, I was a general business, and then I did my MBA after a year a year after uh, football was over at Mac as well. So you, you get your MBA. Now you start immersing yourself in the business world. I'm always curious if the dedication to go from playing high school football in Brampton to being a top flight defensive lineman for the Marauders and the focus, were you able to translate that after NBA into the business world? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I speak to a lot of athletes now that are graduating and I always tell them that, Hey, you don't realize the stuff you're learning on the field. 
through you know the off season, whether you're working out in, in your game reviews and your film reviews, um, you don't realize that all those things are actually very applicable to the business world. You know, one of the reasons um, after my MBA, I was very fortunate to to be part of some great companies that rewarded meritocracy. Um, but you know, when I look back at my career, um, a lot of things I learned in football actually helped me uh, really skyrocket my career. Um, so it's highly applicable. For example, you know, just being disciplined, um, the dedication, but also how do you handle conflict when your boss tells you, "Hey, I don't like your idea." Um, you know, there's all these things I think that that I've uh, learned in football that I, at the time I didn't realize I would be using in the business world. Speaking with Tanvir Bangu, the author of a best-selling book in Amazon, The PRO, Pro-Business Mindset. When you started putting the book together, uh, did it change while you are putting it together? Did you have a focus, or how did it all come to be when you finally finished and presented it, and all of a sudden you're number one? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great journey. When I started writing the book, um, Jim, it was all, I was really curious to to see if I can help other leaders. So, so you know, backstory. Um, I was a VP of tech at a public trade company in my in my late twenties, and and I started realizing that a lot of the a lot of the the success you know as as a company as a team, and personally my career could be attributed back to um, the methodologies or the frameworks that I learned in football. Um, so I said, you know what, maybe there's something more here. Maybe I can develop some sort of framework. And I realized that the reason it was so applicable was because in business today. It's highly, highly, highly uncertain. It's unpredictable. A lot of change. And there's digitization. And when you look at sports, that's exactly what a sports uh, team or, or the overall environment um, is. It's basically uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen in the game. Um, you get injured. You have to make adjustments. There's a lot of turnover. Uh, and uh, you can never predict the score. But what you can do is you can have the right foundation. So when I started looking back and say, you know what, the way I've been leading in business is very similar to um, what I had learned in football. I started putting this book together and I actually also started to interview other athletes that were uh, now executives of large companies. So for example, um, you got, you know, the co-founder of Skip the Dishes, uh, who was a wrestling champion. You got SVP of operations at Walmart, who was an NCAA D1 basketball player. Started asking a lot of these former athletes that, hey, are you also finding that a lot of the things that you learn in, in, in your sport is now highly applicable to business? And the answer was absolutely yes. So that kind of gave birth to the, the pro-business mindset. And you know, I, the three things I took away from my research, Jim, was that it's very important today to build your foundations, uh, which is the off-season in, you know, in sports, then... It's very important to execute on your vision, to not get distracted, which is the regular season. And then you have to make adjustments and make sure you can stay on the path, which is the postseason. So that's where the PRO comes from. Hmm. P is the postseason, R is the regular season, and O is the off season. So oh. I you know, got, got together with the methodology, uh, did some research, and I said, well, let's, let's uh, put this together so I can help other leaders. Um, yeah, you know, it's been a great journey. It's been a lot of learning, but I'm glad to see it on the shelves today. 
Tanvir, I, I was always struck by the words of Joe Burrow during the Super Bowl leading up to the game saying, most of the work that you do, nobody sees. It doesn't get posted to Instagram. It's it's very silent and private, but athletes are putting the work in. And that's that's where I think that sometimes to be successful in business, you're not always sharing it with somebody. You might be up early. You might be up late. You're grind, doing the grind, as they yeah. say, Tanvir, but it, it's got to get done. It has to get done, right? I mean, I'll tell you this. When I led a digital transformation for a global brand for one year, um, we had zero results. All we did was put in place the foundations, put in place technologies, and we kept working and in, basically in, in the shadows, right? Nobody really saw what we were doing. But a year later, when the results came in and we started seeing digital sales skyrocket, you're like, holy crap, that work we put in when nobody's watching us and people were doubting us, that's what allowed us to get here. And it's, a, it's the same quote that my coach would always use in, in McMaster. He would say, uh, championships are won in the off-season. You know, how well of an off-season you have is going to define how far you win the regular season. You can't just show up um, during game day and expect to win. And that's exactly true today uh, in the business world. Now, when the book started selling, when did you get an indication it was getting such a response that it was on the way to number one that people were really responding to your message you were giving? Yeah, you know, I, I when I launched the book, um, I, I did not expect it to become a bestseller on Amazon. Uh, it was in the first week I started seeing uh, a great traction. Um, but what actually really, you know, moved me, Jim, was I actually got somebody that I never knew, I never met in my life. Um, he sent me a really long message saying how big of an impact the book has had on him. And this person is, you know, been, been on the block. He, he's a great, great leader, executive, um, done a lot of great things. And when I received that message from somebody I don't know, someone who, um, you know, heard about the book from other channels, not from me, who read the book and then decided to email me about it and who's somebody who's credible, that, that message kind of showed me like, holy crap, like I'm pretty much, I have a, you know, a big impact on leaders that I didn't expect the book would have. Uh, and that was a moment when I was like, you know what, maybe this is something that I've done here that is valuable and people can take away. Uh, so that was a few weeks into, into the launch. Amazing. As we wrap up, Tanvir, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your company. You're the CEO of TB Momentum. Uh, you're also the best-selling author and everything. But to, to, for let people know what TB Momentum does and how it can help them. Absolutely. So uh, it's an extension of the Pro Business Mindset, the book. Um, and it, it's a keynotes and workshops where I help businesses build championship teams in uncertain and disruptive environments. So we do a lot of speaking uh, for Fortune 500 companies. We also do a lot of workshops um, where we go in and we look at, you know, how can you maximize your team uh, by leveraging the same methodology that um, the book is on. So um, that's what it's all about. The book is called The PRO Business Mindset by former McMaster Marauder, butt-kicking defensive lineman and Brampton native Tanvir Bangu. Tanvir, it's, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure, and you are an inspiration to a lot of people. Keep up the great work and great success. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Jim. My pleasure. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.